Welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, work-life fit expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Change Book Radio Show. It's Deb Crow, your host, and thank you for joining me on this lovely spring day, April the 25th. I want to thank our April sponsor, Augmandino Group. And if you haven't had a chance to take their free Habit Finder assessment, head over to habitfinder.com forward slash change. Over 100,000 people have taken this assessment and it will help you from a metacognitive standpoint figure out how you think and why you think. I'm so pleased to introduce you to my guest this afternoon. He is the president of the Augmandino Group, and his name is Dave Blanchard. Dave has quite an eclectic audience, which include entrepreneurs, sales and marketing teams, business owners, executives, health professionals, and the list goes on and on. Dave has a full-time coaching and consulting practice. Plus, he's writing the feature film script for The Greatest Salesman in the World movie and his new book, Adore Me, What Every Woman Wants a Man to Know. Dave speaks only 26 times a year, and he's committed to creating value everywhere he goes and with everyone he meets. So let's bring Dave on live, and I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Dave, welcome to the Change Book Radio Show. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Deb. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I know you recently did a TED Talk on self-sabotage, and I, I'd really like to hone in and talk to you about the whole metacognition piece and just the foundation of that talk, and also it's a foundational element of the habit finder. So let's talk about your TED Talk and give the listeners a little snapshot of what you talked about. We've actually labeled it enemy number one, self-sabotaging dialogue. And we're encouraging all of our clients to become more conscious and aware of the dialogue they have. And I've recently said, Deb, between two actions, we do something, then we start thinking. Uh, And are our habits of thinking constructive? Or are they destructive? And what impact does that have on the next action that we take? So becoming aware of this self-sabotaging dialogue so that we can finally be available to embrace and fully bring our gifts and talents to the service of others. So we stop robbing ourselves and everyone else of our very best self. And Dave, I know... You've had over 100,000 people take the Habit Finder, and we've talked about this before, about this being enemy number one. Why do you think entrepreneurs at any level have a lack of, let's call it, awareness and understanding of their own thought process and and why they continually have that, I'm going to call it, repetitive 
pattern of behavior? First of all, I think entrepreneurs have a responsibility to become more aware. Others probably aren't either, but an entrepreneur must be because their habits of thinking impact every facet of their lives, the very creation of their dreams. What we see with entrepreneurs, a couple of comments that are thought processes that they have in common. Number one, they're generally effortless thinkers, which means their mind is going all the time, and they're generally quite vivid in their visualization. The risk is, and this is a great statistic after 100,000 assessments, 97% have the gift of vivid visualization, but 98% of those people use it destructively because they've never been taught how to manage the gift of vivid visualization. They, they use it to go into fantasy, where they go into the future, to a time when everything's been accomplished, and then start to imagine what it will be like after that, playing out very vivid scenarios and creating new mental constructs, new realities in their mind, driven by norepinephrine, a euphoric drug, and then life shows up differently, and they end up in the next destructive way of using their mind, catastrophizing that dark dungeon of despair and discouragement where cortisol's coursing through their sympathetic nervous system and, and their amygdala is shutting down the energy-rich parts of their brain to centralize everything and flee or fight. And as a result, they don't like their lives. Oh, this is what I see. This is the reality of it. I don't want this. And then they turn inward and start destroying themselves. It's the number one cause of self-esteem challenges. I question my worth, my worthiness, my ability, my beliefs, my character, my contribution. Just this incessant noise. And I often say, if, if I said half the things to you that you allow your habits of thinking to say to you, could we still be friends? So, in fact, for an entrepreneur, they'll want to become aware and... Their most destructive habit of thinking, self-sabotaging dialogue, is generally driven by the gift to vividly visualize. And when they learn how to use it constructively, then they can start getting inspired ideas, intuitive impressions, creative solutions that ignite passion and drive action. They work without counting the cost or tracking the time. And that's so affirming and intrinsically validating, and it starts to shift that dialogue. I love that. I'm just, I'm sitting here in awe because it's like taking little pieces of a cognitive puzzle and, and putting it together and, and having that self-awareness moment. So my question is the habit finder. Where did you achieve or formulate this idea? And I know you've been speaking and coaching and, and doing business consulting successfully for many, many years. What led you to dig deeper and figure out how to measure this. And I know there's all kinds of elements of science and math, but break it down mm -hmm. into layman's terms and, and tell the listeners how the Habit Finder really came about. Certainly. When I was asked to take over the reins of the Augmandino legacy and take it into the 21st century, phone call I got from Betty while standing in the cancellation line of the Lion King in January of 2000. I was there shooting commercials for CNBC. And came home and said, okay, we want to take this into the 21st century. We, we know the habits of thinking that Aug is teaching us about. Is there a way to actually measure them? 
not our personality, not our tendencies, but the thought processes that are driving our actions, the actual habits of thinking. So we went in search, and we found an amazing science out of the University of Tennessee. It's called Axiological Mathematics, a formal science. It uses Cantor's transfinite calculus. Don't need to remember any of that. But it measures with laser accuracy how we think, not what we think, but how we think. And we've spent the last 18 years perfecting that science. So we get down to a point that we can say, oh, here's the habit. Here's the most common risk when you surrender to that habit. Does that ever show up? Or this one or that one? And people, how do you know this? I don't tell anybody about this. Because the assessment allows us to go below the surface of how we present ourselves and get to the cause the real root reasons for why we're struggling so that we can begin to apply our, our resources and our time and our energy on those things that will, will matter most. So the, the instrument itself, mathematically driven, allows us to measure and target, and then what you measure, you can improve. And I have to give it a caveat that the most interesting discovery and you've been through this, Deb, is the discovery of the gifts, the natural clarity and thought processes that may not be fully maximized because we've got habits of thinking that are talking us out of, for example, our own intuition. So we take it. We're not just trying to change problems. We're trying to learn where we can maximize gifting. Well, I think when you have a tool like the habit finder, which I found so intriguing to do and just the detail of the report and the wonderful videos that you do breaking down all the elements of cognition, which you know, I love Dave and <laughs> so neat when we get to reflect on our own behavior, when really it's a snapshot of our actions and truly not to sound cliche, those aha moments and having the gift of intuition and, and being able to manage those thoughts and feelings and emotions. Um, it's quite an interesting tool and, and I've quite enjoyed the journey. So, so thank you for that. And just congratulations to have a hundred thousand people and growing, taking it and age doesn't matter. And your work experience doesn't matter because your repetitive pattern of behavior is, is going to be there in black and white. And, and you're there to break it down and say, here's where you are. Here's your baseline. But the good news is we can work on it. So just an awesome coaching model. Really, really love it. Now, I know that this is an amazing year. It's the 50th anniversary of The Greatest Salesman in the World, which is a wonderful book. And I've read it. I, I felt succumbed by a lot of the, the messages on a different level. I think anybody of any level of faith can read this and have their own interpretation. But I know that this is special for you. And I know that there's been over 25 million copies sold. It's in 25 languages. And I know that you're working on kind of the next big stepping stone to honor the legacy of Ogmandino. And would you share that with our listeners? Oh, I'd be happy to. This is so exciting. When Betty called me 18 years ago, and I was in New York, it was all about the film rights to the book. It was during that discussion that she and I made the decision 
to create a coaching and training program first and start to create a groundswell of value in the principles in a very formal way, measurement, application, result, and eventually make the movie. Well, in March of 2017, uh, a gentleman who's a tremendous Ogmandino fan and very successful real estate uh, investor came to us and asked if we would be interested in him funding this process. <laughs> well, of course we were. I just got back from Israel a week ago. I spent two weeks in Israel and just a cultural immersion because during this process, the, the producers have asked me to write the script. Now, I've written five feature film scripts, but it's been 20 years since I've written one. The last one I wrote was for one of Og's books, and I started coming up with all this creative stuff. I couldn't stop because we've been working with this so much. And so they asked me to write it, and they said, and if you're going to do it, you have to go to Israel first. So it just got back. Now setting, a time that side, the time, setting aside the time to begin the process of writing it, and as soon as that script is written, then it goes into the next stage of selecting a director and, and a lead actor. And, and then it goes to the next stage and the next stage. Making a movie is quite a process. But how exciting to finally be on that road with the funding necessary to make that happen. That's just so exciting. Well, and I think the excitement is that you are present tense you have brought Ogmandino into the 21st century. And to listen to the different scrolls and just to take the greatest salesman in the world and now bring it from his beautiful words on pages into a reality of a movie, I think is just such an awesome gift that, that Betty has bestowed on you and obviously shows and demonstrates her her honor and respect that she has and thinks that you're the best person to do it. So I'm sure Og's looking down and smiling, thinking, Dave's the right man for the job. <laughs> I'm sure hoping so. They asked me, and frankly, Deb, I took five weeks to say yes. I'm up at our cabin right now. We've got seven kids, 27 grandkids. Everybody's going to descend on us tomorrow. <laughs> but I happen to be in the room. I'm up in the TV room in the loft. There's a red chair across the room from me. And one Sunday morning, I sat in that chair and I basically said, okay, if I'm supposed to write this, I need a download. I mean, an absolute download. And it wasn't two minutes later that it started coming and I couldn't, I couldn't take notes fast enough. And a couple hours later, I just stopped and looked at that and said, oh, my goodness, with that help from that source that I trust, uh, then I'll agree to do it. I couldn't do it on my own. This is, this is too big. This is too important to say, yeah, I can write the script. Um, I can with a power greater than me with God. I, I can do this with his help. And now I know that his help is, is coming. So, yes, there's a confidence to be able to do so. Well, and I think you just brought up two really relevant points. And I know from talks that I've done and coaching that I've done, sometimes as entrepreneurs, we can be our own worst enemy. So because I love talking to you about cognition mm -hmm. and metacognition, there is an element of creativity that comes from handwriting versus typing. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to share with the listeners 
your personal thoughts on that. And again, you chose to handwrite versus typing. And can you share with us why? Well, I write handwrite in my journal. So when I'm really wanting to get connected, I write in my journal. When I'm writing scripts, et cetera, there's a format you use, and you do that on a computer. Now, when I'm writing books, I generally am writing them on a computer. But that day, I was sitting here with yellow pad in hand. <laughs> I, I'm hoping those six pages will, will really be meaningful after the movie comes out, because it was quite an experience. There's something about that tactile connection between the pen and the paper, my heart, and a power greater than me all coming together in, in writing. Uh, I actually type faster than I write, or I can't read my writing. Um, but there's just something about feeling it. I could just feel it when I was writing it. So when I'm doing something deeply personal, like a, like that kind of a moment or a journal, I, 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 I write it by hand. Well, I'm the same way, and I, I always find I, – I love Robin Sharma's 5 a.m. club because I, I think that there's – a calmness and a clarity for me anyways in the morning when I first wake up and it's just the quietness of your house, the quietness of your mind, you're rested. And one of the big questions um, that I often get asked that I would love for you to answer for our listeners is how do you develop a strategy or a commitment to get up and do that writing every day? Because I know a lot of people that either want to write something, or maybe are just trying to get into the element or habit of journaling, how do you as an entrepreneur really give that commitment back to yourself and make that a regular daily habit? What a great question. My mind immediately goes back to a speaking engagement I had at a big convention where people wanted to learn how to become writers and speakers, etc., I just had this strong impression. I said, how many of you want to write a book? And, you know, most of the audience hands went up. And, and I said, okay, how many of you write an hour a day? I was looking for a hand. And I said, we're at risk here. We're at risk that you want to be famous and rich. You like the idea of having a book but you may not like the idea of actually writing the book. And then when people start to write, I know this was my experience. I wanted to write the book in the first draft. The first book of the three that I've written took four years and like five drafts. It was a process of almost giving birth to a book. And the answer to your question is that when something is just it's like a flame inside your soul that just lights you up. You can't help but want to get it out. You want so badly for people to feel what you felt, to know what you know, to be relieved of some of their challenges, to find some direction because you've been given direction. You can't wait for the morning to come. For me, it's 4 a.m. Four to eight, four hours is long enough to be able to really dedicate to writing. And at 4 a.m., you get up and some of the most precious moments, because I'm there, hungry, willing, wanting, and just start writing. And some days, frankly, what's written doesn't make it in the book. 
And some days things come together and you don't edit a single word in what you write, but you just keep writing and you just keep writing and you just keep writing because of this insatiable hunger to communicate something. If someone feels that, I say, write a book. If you don't feel that, then I always ask, why do you want to write the book? What's the purpose? Because in the world we live in right now, there's kind of a movement of wanting to become a guru or an expert. Or There's a lot of consultants who help people get postured as that kind of person. Oh, my goodness, we need to write a book. What should the title be? I don't know. What should we put in it? I don't know. Let's, let's just put a book together. I got a book. Uh, you kind of tell when you read one of those books. I would encourage anybody who's listening who might want to write to, to find the purpose, the reason, the passion for wanting to communicate a message. Now you can write a book. That is a clear message for sure. And I was chuckling when you said you write on yellow paper. And do you know the meaning behind the color yellow? You know, I don't. Do you mean I'm going to get to teach you something today? I'm so excited. I learn new things every day. I'm excited to learn it. <laughs> I have. I learned this uh, when I was in university taking one of my neuroscience courses. I have yellow pads of lined paper, much like you. I have yellow post-it notes. And yellow stands for freshness and happiness and positivity and clarity and optimism, energy, enlightenment, intellect, loyalty, joy. It is, it's, it's almost like the color that encompasses every positive adjective that you could give to behavior, which I think is so cool because I've always written on yellow lined pads of paper as well. I love that. They should call them life pads instead of legal pads, right? Exactly. And <laughs> But you, you gave the listeners a really great strategy. And I think whether you take the habit finder or not, when you can really lean in to your own metacognition and think about how you think about things and really look at the model of your own time management, writing one hour a day is not impossible. I kind of put it up there with the one hour you need to take for self-care. If, if we don't take a break during the day, I think it drains us of our creativity, our innovation, and we all just need to have that pause during the day for many, many reasons, whether it's health, everybody has a different rendition, but to have that whole work-life integration piece, I think an hour a day is not impossible to write. And I'm just wondering if you know if there's research or something has been published. Why are we so creative at that early hour of the day? Do you have any reason behind that, Dave? Have you ever researched any science? Is there anything evidence-based that's been published? Well, there, there is. And the summary is basically this, that when we go to sleep and get a good night's rest, if we've got sufficient REM sleep, for example, the brain basically defrags. It's like a computer. It's all cleaned up and ready to go. And sometimes our eyes open because our mind is ready to go. 
But if we haven't been taking care of our body, it may still be tired. That's a conflict. Should tell us, wow, I wake up at four o'clock ready to rock and roll, but my body's going, uh, well, let's get our body in shape too. Because when that mind wakes up, it is so clear. Um, I remember one night driving home from the office in San Diego, and I was making all of these really difficult life decisions. You know, I was tired. And I pulled over on the side of the road and I said, David, you cannot make life decisions when you're tired. Go get a good night's sleep. Because we know that when we wake up in the morning, we've got a different perspective, a fresher perspective. All the pressures have been released, and now we're kind of ready to start a new day. It is the very best time. People say, oh, I'm a night owl. And some night owls are just trying to avoid the next day from coming. They're staying up because they don't want to have to get up. I used to be that, and I made the switch. I started getting up at 4 o'clock, and I started going to bed at a very different hour. But I think that's the answer. The brain's defragged. It's, it's alive. It's, it's awake. It's ready to process. It's so open to possibilities at that point in time. It's really a sacred time of the day when it's just you. Those thought processes inspired, I would hope. And we are planning and considering possibilities for that day and for our life. We're most likely going to make very fresh and very productive and constructive decisions at that point. And now we start the day. Far too many wake up at five, go back to sleep, worst sleep there is in the day. Between five and six o'clock, for example, it's not enough time to even do a sleep cycle. We wake up groggy. The tsunami has already hit of the day, and we're just trying to catch up the rest of the day versus, well, this morning, being on top of everything, ready to go, and the first thing happens, and you're ready for it. It's all, almost like a preemptive approach to, to life. Uh, that's kind of a summary of what I've discovered. Uh, most of that, by the way, came from a uh, I did an infomercial in 1997 called Nature Sleep. We sold $22 million worth of mattresses in nine months. These are four-inch mattresses extruded to hold somebody in a perfectly anatomic position. Anatomic position. Um, and we did a lot of sleep research in preparation for that. And that was the conclusion. Defrag the brain, fresh, new, ready to go. Why wouldn't we want to use that time for the creation, mental creation? Well, I agree with you because I I feel the same when I when I wake up early and sometimes I I love the I call them spiritual awakenings that happen between three a.m. and four a.m. and I I keep a pad and a pen beside my my bed because the thoughts there and the little voice is like write this down because it might not be there when you get up in an hour or two hours. And I'm always yeah. intrigued when I do wake up and I, I look at the pad of paper and, and my mind goes right back and then the writing starts. And, and I love what you said. When you have passion in your heart or some of my clients have called it fire in their belly, yep. it's, there's a story to be told. And I know that you have been um, referred to as a master storyteller. So I think, that's, oh. I think that that is great advice. So the excitement for me being in the Change Book series is I want to thank you for, for sponsoring the show for the month of April and for allowing people an opportunity to 
download and experience the habit finder and all the richness in that evaluation. And I do hope from the bottom of my heart that you connect with my fellow co-author, David Hevener from The Change, because he is our Mm -hmm. acclaimed Hollywood producer and he's a man of faith and he's just looking for that next great movie that has a level of passion and faith and just a beautiful story. And I think if you're writing the script, I think that's a win-win combination, Dave. Thank you. Yes. We're happy to be your sponsor. One, we love you. Two, we love what you do, love what you're all about. It's just a great place for us to be. So thank you. Well, I know you're a busy fellow and I know you've got a busy coaching business and a busy consulting practice. And I know you speak at least 25, 26 times a year. So thank you for spending the last half an hour or so with me on the Change Book Radio Show and just continued success. Well, thank you, Deb. It's been an honor to be here and uh, thank you for the invitation. My pleasure.